Hello, fans of podcasted statistics lectures for psychology students. Dave Broadback uh, from Algoma University. Uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from Psychology 3256, Advanced Univariate Statistics. This is take two of this intro, by the way, because I got the name wrong the last time. I got the name wrong of a course I've taught 23 times and made up the name. Uh, anyway, uh, there's also YouTube videos that go with this. So search for my name if you want to see uh, s slides synced with my voice. Uh, beyond that, I hope you get something out of this. And if you don't, well, that's on you, isn't it? So today, um, is I guess the second last, well this is sort of the last real sort of review type thing for many of your stats course of tape. A little refresher if you want to say. So today I'm going to talk about t-tests, which I for some reason use as a lower kind of letters, because uh, it's getting cool. I don't know why I did that. So let's talk a bit about these. You know that, like when I came in, that's something that's pretty cool, right? So, to find the probability of a given value of a variable, assuming the variable is normal, we convert it to z-score and we look it up in the table, right? Z equals x minus u, or sigma. In other words, we convert it to standard deviation units. Right? Talked about that last time. It's something you've done before. As I said, it's also, today, it's also something you normally don't do. That's not a thing, it's just individual values. It's usually from the means. So that's how you do this. You look it up and it's it. We usually do it with means, not individual values. In fact, I don't know that I've ever I've seen people use box plots more often in papers. More often than I've seen someone say the likelihood of this individual score. That's just not something that comes up. The reason you have to know it is it's the basis for everything we're going to freaking talk about in the course. But no one really does this as an, as a, as an end into distribution not of x but of x bar. We don't care about how likely the score is, we care about how likely a mean is. And remember when I talked about hypothesis testing, uh, I said how likely is it that these two means come from a distribution that looks like this. So we care about means, we don't care about individual scores we really exhibit. There are cases where we might yeah, you might do something like to, to include certain people in a study. Let's say you're doing a study of people with really high IQs. So immediately, Dupuy is out. But, joke, don't be called Dupuy humor. But let's say you say, okay, I want people that are above 150 IQ points. Or, you know, and the probability of that is whatever it is. Right? Nine 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 something. I thought it was pretty funny, man. 
Uh, so, so yeah, cool. You might do it that way to exclude people or include people in a study, or rats or plants. If you're Brandon Shanley, you're boring. Just the plants, my name's Brandon. I like calling him a gardener, a glorified gardener. It's fun. I get a little kick out of that. I don't think he does, but the point. So, we're going to care about the distribution of x bar. How likely is this mean to have happened? This goes back to what I like, mentioned central limit theorem last time, but I didn't actually have it written out for you. This is the central limit theorem. This is what I want you to know word for word. There are very few times in my life, in my career, in what I do, when I say you have to know exactly what I am just right there. Given a population of mean mu and a variance sigma squared, the sampling distribution of the mean mu, mu sub x bar, equals mu, and a variance of sigma squared over n. As n increases, this distribution approaches normal no matter what the shape of the parent population distribution. So if on the test next Thursday, when it's an open book test, and it thinks a central limit term, write that down. Here's a free point. If it's on the quiz on Tuesday, memorize that. I don't ask that often for you to memorize things. In fact, I've taught most of you before, I think, I don't ask you to memorize things typically. Sometimes I'll list these, the seven steps, and the steps, and the first transition. A few things in 26. But typically, that's not my scene. But this is important. And it's not because, because it's a theorem, mathematical theorem, the words matter. The words matter. There's also a proof to this, and I'm not going to show it to you because A, I don't know it offhand. B, it's not going to help us. If you want it, go look it up and you can figure it out yourself. This just is true. Okay. There is a proof, but I, I haven't seen the proof yet. I have a book that has the proof in it in my office. I think it's in my office, but I get home. Yes, on my name table, beside my bed, I have three statistics for us. That's how exciting a life I lead. Including my second year stats book that I still use to this day. Okay, given a population with a mean mu and a variance sigma squared, all that says is we have a population of something. You know what the variable is. Doesn't care. The numbers don't know where they came from. But we can say it has a mean mu and it has a variance of sigma squared. Notice I didn't say anything about the shape. I just said we have a variable distribution. And it has a variance of sigma squared. It has to be a non-zero variance. Well, it has to be non-zero because it's a variable. If it has a zero variance, it's a constant, right? It would be all the same number all the time. Yeah. Good. So. The sampling distribution of the mean, what does that mean? That means if I took an infinite number of samples of a given size and then plotted out all those values of that sample, mean, of those means, I would get a distribution of means. Does that make sense? Good, right? Okay. The mean will be the same as the actual mean, mu sub x bar, but the, the average average the average average would be the same as the average. And it will have a variance of sigma squared divided by n. 
So as n increases, that means the sampling distribution of the means variance will get tighter. The cool thing also here is that it'll be normal. No matter what the shape of the parent population distribution. If the parent population distribution could have literally two values, so you will get a normal distribution for the sampling distribution of the mean. As I said, you can try it yourself if you feel like it by flipping a coin five times and, and counting, uh, we'll get heads a score of one and tails a score of zero. Do it flip five times, what was the number you got? Then do it again and again and again and do it 30 times. And plot it out. You'll be amazed. You really will get a normal distribution. It's, it's kind of weird and cool. Because this sounds kind of counterintuitive at first, but then when you actually do it yourself, or do it, roll a die five times and just see what the average die roll was, then do it again. Do that 15 times. Or if you're halfway decent at writing a computer program, you can probably get this with five lines of code. If you're the person who does that. You play Excel. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You'll get this normal distribution. It's very cool. You hear a lot of people say it has to be about, it has to be about 30. It's about five. It works about five. And it actually works well. If you did it, if it a number of times, it works at two. And if two, you have to do a lot of samples. So people talk about the magic of 30. That's the law of large numbers. That's not related to the central limit theorem. They confuse the two numbers. Some stats books confuse the which makes me sad. People have said to me, Dave, why don't you write your own stats book? And I've said, that smacks of effort. I have a job. Also, I don't want to write a book. Plus, the book we have here, Gold Standard is the book for this course. I think anyway. All right, questions? Okay. I, this, uh, as much as that's sort of sarcastic, say, ooh, power, it's actually also true. I feel that this is really neat because I don't have to know anything. And I can talk about this population. So the population uh, distribution shape doesn't matter. What matters is random sampling. This is assuming a random sample. It matters a lot less than you might think. Because you might say, wait. I see all those people talk about their psychology and honors thesis pair projects, or their biology honors thesis projects, and they're doing statistics. And are any of them actually randomly sampling the population? The answer, of course, is not a chance in hell. We don't have the money to do a random sample, or the time. And same thing with the biology ones. You thought it could be you know, songbirds and gen foot. It could be something you live plant with, random chance. It could be anything. Right? And comparing that to your heights and things. Right? That actually is cool. I like to make fun of it. It's really cool. Um, but who is randomly sampling here? And it's not just because we don't have the money because we're a small school. Nobody has the money to do that kind of thing. We already have a sample. Wait a second, but then how does all the science work? <laughs> in things like in hard sciences, when I say hard, I mean difficult, like biology and psychology, not easy ones like chemistry and physics. We're dealing with complicated living organisms. Yeah. 
You know why we, we don't have to randomly sample? It hardly matters at all. It matters, the math it rests on it matters, but when you simulate doing samples and you don't use random samples, it works almost perfectly. So close to perfectly, it just doesn't matter. Which is great. So it's, it's a wonderful thing, actually. So it doesn't really matter that we don't have random samples. Yay. I mean, that, please. So to find the probability of x bar, that's what we're interested in, how likely a mean is, we have to just use our old friend, the z-score. We just use the z-score. But we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to find out how likely a mean is in a distribution of means. And as odd as that sounds, the numbers don't know where they came from. And we know it's going to be normal because the center limit theorem told us so. So this is mathematically completely cool. There's no issue doing this at all. So this changes things a bit. So now we go from z equals a score minus a mean divided by the standard deviation. Well, the score is now a mean. Right? The population mean is actually the same because the central limit theorem told us. The standard deviation of the, of the sampling distribution of the mean is, oh, it's sigma over root n. The central limit theorem told us that. It just is. So while uh, you may have thought when you took an intro stats course that this was a different formula, you had to learn a brand new formula, and you wrote down on your little cheat sheet, you get a little formula sheet in that class, in the intro stats class, you get a little formula sheet, right? And you make up your own little formula sheet. Oh yeah, that's what people do. And a lot of you wrote things like, for a mean, for a score, Actually, if you know the central limit theorem, you didn't even have to write this one down because you just know this. A friend of mine used to make the cheat sheets up, the formula sheets up for classes. They could use his formula sheet. But he would put on formulas, but he wouldn't say what they were for. He also put on formulas that had nothing to do with statistics, like he put on things like, he just wrote down 6.02 times 7 times in a good way, I kind of enjoyed that. When I was in my stats class, they would only give you half the formula. They only give you the right half. So you'd get x minus b over sigma. You wouldn't get z equals. And I learned very quickly that I didn't need to have that because I just studied. Makes you feel good that I had, right? Didn't you find out when you took those courses, the intro stats kind of classes, you know, the first time you're looking at it, the second time it's like, I really need this. I don't need this. This just makes you feel good. The best thing is, I when I used to do it, when I, when I used to do this course before I started saying, oh, screw it, just use your books. <laughs> I used to approve people's formula sheets. And I was not, I was amazed at how how tiny your writing can get when you want to cover on one page. Like you should be monks doing things for calligraphy. It was, it was impressive. You know, the one guy that just comes in and he's just got written on the back of an envelope. I don't know, it's this. Okay, this one. Anyway, this and this, are, they're equivalent. It's just that we know that you know, x becomes x bar sigma, sigma over root n. Questions? Okay.
Here's an example. So let's say we have 25 subjects, and I guess we have to call them participants now. That change over happened. It was in the late 90s, so I'm obviously a dinosaur. But when that happened, I actually got a feedback from an editor saying I couldn't call the pigeons in my paper subjects. I had to call the participants. And I said they had to sign a consent form. These were subjects, not participants. I'm going to call them animals. How's that? Anyway, 25 subjects are going to IQ improvement course, which, as an aside, would not work. Um, and then IQ is tested after the course data with an IQ, mean IQ 110. So IQ population is a mean of 100 to standard deviation 15. As I said the other day, the reason we use IQ all the time is we actually know the value for sigma in the population. So that's why we use that. That's why it's used as a, as a, as a running set of examples in stats courses, because we actually know the, Sigma of the population, and almost every other variable in the world he tells. Okay. So, z equals x bar minus b over sigma divided by root n, 110 minus 100, 15 over root 25. N is the number of subjects, number of observations. Or if you want to use fancy stats words, the number of experimental units. z equals 10 over 15. Divided by 5, z equals 10 over 3, z is 3.33. The probability then of getting a z score, sorry, of getting that mean with that many subjects is vanishingly small, actually. The probability is less than 0 0.00043. So my old calculator told me. In fact, that value is so big that your, if you have a z table to back your book, which I know you do, it doesn't go up that high. It's virtually impossible to get, a, to get that by random chance alone. It could happen. There's, you know, 43 100 thousandths of a chance it would happen. <laughs> it's not random chance. So that's how you do this if you do the population variance, right? Let's say you do one of these kind of things. And again, I, I know that you've all done these. You may have forgotten doing them. Maybe you have flashbacks to doing them. There's a real issue there, though. And that's that we typically don't know sigma for a population. It's just not something we know. You can usually either know u for a population, or you can think of some theoretical value it could be. For sigma, you can't. It's just not a thing. We use IQ because we actually do know it that way because the tests are designed to have a mean, uh, sorry, instead of division 15. Well, wait a second. The expected value of S squared is sigma squared, right? right. So an unbiased estimator. Okay. Well, that's the case. Why don't we just sub S squared in for sigma squared? Hmm. Yeah, that's what we're doing. And now we have two sampling distributions to worry about. We have to worry about the sampling distribution of the mean and the sampling distribution of the variance. Oh, okay. Two things to worry about. And the sampling distribution of S squared will change depending upon the variance because, as you know, the, just look at the formula. 
x minus x bar squared over n minus 1, right? That's where x squared is. Okay, so like it gets smaller as n gets bigger. We have to take this into account. We can't just use s squared, we have to take into account the number of observations. Questions so far? You have any questions for me? Yes, please. Can you give us the value of like mu on a test? Like if well, well you already have to figure that out. Yeah. But I mean, if I give you a batch of numbers, let's say I give you a batch of eight numbers, ten numbers, you should be able to figure out mu easily. You have to talk to it from Right? Now, if you need to figure out mu, it'll either it would be obvious. Or I'll directly tell you. Okay. So we can't use Z. So we use something called T. Developed by a guy named Gossett. And he worked at Gittis. Groovy. Yeah. But he couldn't. Gittis liked their scientists publishing. They thought it's great. But then they're like, we don't want you publishing under your real name because we don't want people to steal you. We don't want people to poach you. So he published under the name Student. Like he was a student, which is great. That's why it's sometimes called Student's Tea Test. He knows names actually Gossett. But imagine being a statistician or brewery. It's like my dream job. So, where do we get that formula? Well, it's basically the same as the T formula. We just put S in where sigma was. Same as the Z formula. All right. T changes depending on the number of observations. Because S squared changes depending on the number, number of observations. Okay? And in fact, it changes based on the degrees of freedom to estimate sigma squared, or by calculating s squared. We had to fix a value, that's the mean, the calculated mean, to calculate s squared. If we talked about degrees of freedom the other day, that's the freedom the numbers have to vary, that's the degrees of freedom are. So the number of the values that can be arbitrarily assigned, right? This is actually really a really powerful technique because now we don't have to know anything. We don't have to know the shape of the parent population distribution. We don't have to know the variance. We have to know the, the mean of the population, but you know what? That's kind of almost like a gimme. It's almost always there. So we have to hardly know anything about the population. We just have to know about our sample. Okay? Questions? Right, you've done this, you've played with t-test before. Okay. 
So if we have pairs of observations, things change a little bit. It's the same damned formula. So, and these are pairs of observations. It's just like that. Pretty cool, right? So, x bar sub d, s sub d, and n. Now, n is the number of pairs of observations, and s sub d and x bar d are the difference scores. So, if we have pairs of observations, let's say we would, well, what about just using the same people as their own control? So, before and after. So, instead of our IQ improvement course example, and when you think about it, that's kind of a funny example because we didn't give them a test beforehand. We just gave, we just assumed before when we calculate their IQ, then on average it would be 100, right? But we didn't do before and after. If we did before and after with this, we measure people's IQs before, and then after the quote IQ improvement course, give them the same thing again, and then subtract after, or sort of before and after. And what's the expected value if there's no effect of before minus after? Zero. So really it's x bar sub d minus mu. You know what mu is? It's zero. <laughs> so we just don't put it in the formula. It's zero. And again, you likely thought this was an entirely different formula for a t test. It's not. It's the same damn formula, just that we just, this is minus zero. Minus zero means to turn it off and remove it. Sorry, some might. Okay. I think they're overthinking things. Because they're maybe doing that for a pedagogical reason, and that is you should remember that that's actually there. The mean difference should be zero. But when would the mean difference for a null hypothesis ever not be zero? Except in a statistics homework. <coughs> that would never happen. Like it wouldn't be a thing. So typically, you just think of the formula like this. If you really want to have the whole damn thing, sure, minus zero, it's true. And then you do see, again, it, usually in homework problems at, uh, at the end of a chapter about t-tests, it'll say, it's assumed that the difference between the two groups will be five. No one does that. It doesn't happen. Right? So it could be pairs of observations, say person. It could be match pairs. So let's say we're doing a blood pressure group. So we want to match subjects on their blood pressure. Okay. So we put everything together, measure the blood pressure, and it turns out that uh, me and Matthew are almost exactly the same blood pressure. This is a city level. Look how much water some of you are. But anyway, so we're now a pair. And you guys are pairs. So we do that, and then if there's no difference, I take the, the medication and you're not. If there's no, if the drug has no effect, we're fine. We have, uh, we, should, we, should, we should do no difference. We still consider the difference to be zero. It should be zero, right? So you can do the, that's what's called matched pairs. That's a thing you can do. So sometimes it's called a matched pairs t-test. Sometimes it's called a correlated t-test. So, match pairs of for pairs of observations on the same person or same subject or the same rack. 
and or you can match pairs. Okay. Now you got to be pretty careful here because typically, how do we assign subjects to conditions? We do that by randomly assigning them because that's the best way to make sure that by you know dumb luck they're basically the same. What you've done here is you've made sure they're the same on one variable and completely different on everything else, right? So this better be a damned important variable. So we better have determined that if we're doing our blood pressure thing, that age is unimportant here. Because I don't know how old Matt is, but he's more than, he's not 54. And I am. I When you start doing things like, you know, I've been retired in like 11 years. It's like, what? I still feel like I'm 12. I literally have to have single opinions I had when I was 12. Same likes and dislikes, except for the alcohol and the weed. But everything else is the same. Like, I like the same hockey team. I like the same things like video games. Like, I, I literally am thinking what I'm going to do in my next movie game of civilization as I'm talking. Like it's exactly the same. And then, really, people. I don't like people generally. Except for you guys, you're awesome. Like everybody else. Oh, you all just good because I can't stand them. Okay. So, better be that blood pressure is really important here. Because everything else about the two of us is pretty different. It was grandparents lived next to me, which is weird. It's a little weird, it's a small town, I'm just saying. So, we're great people. You need to impress your grandma. There's a lot of that, doesn't it? <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. Anyway, we can do a whole thing about it when none of you else would get the joke. But anyway, what if your pairs aren't matched, which is usually what we have? Usually we've assigned subjects to groups and pretend we assign. And we, everybody on the side of the room to a group, we get randomly assigned to the side of the group. And you know from research methods courses why you're randomly assigned because we can't measure all variables and make sure the groups are the same. But what we can do is randomness and be our friend and randomly assign subjects to groups. Great. Maybe they come from two populations. Maybe. Our null hypothesis is they don't, but they, they do. Right? So our hypotheses are like this. Whole is mu one is equal to mu two. Mu two, of course, are my favorite band. <laughs> um, if you've been to my office, actually, it is mostly a shrine mu two, but that's beside the point. You two are great. You two are just average. <laughs> statistics to average joke. Funny. Um, there are no funny stats jokes. HO is the mu1 equals mu2. In other words, the two, they're the same population. Um, HA or HA is that mu1 is not equal to mu2. We could put a direction on that. Mu2 is bigger than mu2. Mu1 is less than mu2. Let's just say it's not the same. Okay. 
So before it was that the two means, I should actually throw it in there, that for the mash, <coughs> excuse me, for the mash pairs t test, it's that uh, mu one minus mu zero, we call it that, equals zero, and the HA would be mu one minus mu zero is not equal to zero. Right? This is before and after one and zero, or you mean one two. So the original T formula looks like this. T equals x bar minus mu divided by s over root n. I've said that in my life. It's a big number. A pile of nickels if I was given a nickel for each time. And remember, this is the yeah, this is the statistic we're interested in x bar. That's the HO mu. And that, of course, is our spread-endedness, or our, we'll call it our error. And in fact, s divided by square root n is called the standard error. The standard error of the mean. Okay. So we need statistic minus HO divided by standard error of the mean. That's what we need to, to figure out for two groups. For two groups, Mr. Spock. Sometimes I find myself becoming William Shatner. It's really weird. So x bar 1 minus x bar 2 is our statistics we're dealing with. Because we have two means now, your mean and your mean. And we're going to subtract what our null hypothesis is, mu1 minus mu2. And practically, and we're going to divide it by error. Maybe we're going to work on that yet. But practically, the mu1 minus mu2 should be 0. So let's just leave it at 0. And again, maybe you were taught that you should always have that there too, but it really is just 0. So practically, it's 0. Because our null says that mu1 minus mu2 is 0, or mu1 equals mu2. So why would we, why put it in? So the t. It's going to be x bar 1 minus x bar 2, dividing by some estimate of the error. But the error thing's weird here because it's of two potentially different distributions, two sampling distributions. We've got your mean and your standard deviation, and your mean and your standard deviation. So we're estimating using two different quantities. So you're going to put those together. I mean, I think you, I know you know where this is going, but now the error is weird. The variances have to be weighted somehow. So if we have different numbers of observations per group, which we actually say 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 8, 9, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. We can literally have exactly the same number of people on each side of the room. Wow. Well, let's pretend I do this group. Now we get 10 over here. We're going to keep <laughs> But I don't know what this is at. Uh, Halo? Anyway, we would want to weight this because our variance here is calculated based on 10 people. And your variance there is calculated based on nine piddly people that can't beat us anything. Trash talk, I'm hoping it helps. I don't know what we're competing in, but we're competing 
Football, baseball, hockey, you know, believe you. Running, you're screwing up 50 words. Alright. So we're gonna take each sample standard deviation, divide by number of observations. That'll stand it. Because ours is based on 10, ours is based on 9. You guys are actually probably better than us, but I'm feeling insecure, so I need to trash my kids. As long as it's not Scrabble, you get a chance. I am horrible at Scrabble. Because I have no patience. And I just like, I don't sit there and look for a good word and go, oh good, cash, we'll just put that down. And meanwhile, what I had, I could have used um, I also had categories, but it's like, no, no, screw it, cat, next. I have no patience to scrap. My wife, wife, who saved her first language, she was speaking English until she was 18, kicks the shit out of me in that game. After that, I was seeing little places in video games. I was like, I'm going But she, she's also smarter than me, probably, so bet she's a better writer than I am, too, and again. So for our error, what we got to do is we're, it looks like this. So, because that was variance, this one going to root. So we're going to do x bar one minus x bar two divided by s squared sub one over n sub one plus s squared sub two over n sub two. Do I have two? Yes. Square that whole quantity. Um, so it's always the same formula. We're just subbing in different things. It's statistic minus null hypothesis over standard. Now, there's something that's going on here, which is, because I know you know there's another way to do this. This assumes the variances of R2 groups are equal. And actually, how, oh, you have a question? Does it matter which one you subtract with? Because that's two minus, it doesn't matter if you have one minus x2 or s2 minus Because, you know, it might come up negative. I usually put the higher one first, because I don't know why. <laughs> But T can be negative, it's a symmetrical distribution of T's prediction, so it can be negative is our problem. And it's even doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, no, no, doesn't matter. That's a good question. A lot of times people tell you to put the bigger one first, but it really doesn't matter. And that's because their T distribution uh, T table doesn't have negative values, it confuses people, but if you realize that it's a symmetrical distribution, so the negative probability is the same as the positive probability, it doesn't matter. But if you're getting a square root of a negative number, Oh, it's not going to be a negative because you're adding. Oh, you're adding. You're adding. You're not subtracting. And this is something. Thanks for pointing that out. So that all makes an interesting point because that I saw and I forgot to mention. Even though we're subtracting both of them, we can't subtract variances. The variances have to add together. The variances always add. When you, when you take two distributions, you put them together. Okay, you add the variances. It's just a thing. Okay. So yet you're subtracting. Well, subtracting is just the beginning <coughs> the addition. So it really is the same as addition. That's it. Thanks for mentioning. Okay. Two good questions. Now, the very this assumes the variances are the same. As I said, the problem here is that we don't really know the variances are the same, do we? We can't know that if we knew that. 
we wouldn't worry about doing science because we actually know when they experience this. That's not a thing. It's, you know, if one is maybe twice as big as the other one, you can use that formula. That's a good rule of thumb. You can also test, you can do a statistical test of the variances to see if they're significantly different if you want to. Or you can be kind of safe and use something where instead of using both variances on their own, you pool them together. So if the variances are unequal, things actually change a little bit. I think I've moved my pointer somehow. And it's inside there. It is. There it is. Okay. There it goes. So what we have now is called a pooled variance, a squared sub p. And it's just weighting the variances by their number of observations. <coughs> so oftentimes you'll be taught that that's just the way to do it. Because it's actually it's more conservative. It's a safer bet. So because it's more conservative, uh, and you might, this isn't, so don't go, well, I'm not conservative, man. I mean, it's not called politics. This is a, not making a fool of yourself. This is a, not saying, that, like, it's, it's like not finding false positives. You want to be conservative in science at all possible. It makes sense to be conservative. Not in your ideas, but when you're doing, in your research design, your statistics you should be as conservative as you can be, realistically. Because you don't want to say that there are, that there are aliens or uh, ESP. <laughs> it's just not a thing. You don't want to say those Okay. So a lot of times you're taught just do it this way. And in fact, that's a safer way to do it, the pool of variance. But really, the results are basically the same as long as one isn't a little more than two times bigger than the other one. And a lot of times you're taught a thing where first you compare the two variances. And you compare them using an F ratio. And then you look up how likely the variances are actually different. And if they are different, they do this. Nobody does that. There's no need. Practically no one does that. So how many degrees of freedom does this have? Well, it has n1 plus n2 minus 2 degrees of freedom. You have used two different quantities to estimate. Right? You've used x bar 1 and x bar 2, so you've lost two degrees of freedom, not just one. The key is always when you look at what's what's the bottom here. That's what I was going to tell you the answer. Okay. There's an actually even better way to do this. But I don't know how to do it by hand. Well, I've seen it done by hand. It's all done with matrix algebra. Who wants to do matrix algebra? Not me. That almost made me leave graduate school. We have to do matrix algebra in um, this. this PhD stats course. And the prof said, you know, I'll take your matrix algebra as undergraduates, right? I'm like, no, it's going to learn it. And then, okay, well, learn it. Your PhD students, you're going to learn this, not a problem. It's not very difficult. But what it does, when you do this other method for different variances for two groups, it gives you what are called partial degrees of freedom. So you end up with, instead of like 18 degrees of freedom, like 17.4 degrees of freedom. You'll see if you play with SPSS and play with the t-test procedure. So go to compare means and pick t-test, and you'll just have two variables. 
Okay, so just set that up, set up a data set like that, have two variables, and you'll see, in fact, that it'll, it'll do, and so it'll compare means, and then, we might have time to do this after another. Um, it'll give you, assume variances are equal, that's when you do the first one, it'll assume variances are different, that's using pooled variances, and then it's gonna do assume variances are different using partial degrees of freedom. And doing that by hand is not a thing people do. <laughs> it's a thing people need to compute. This is something you do by hand, typically, if you have a small amount of data, because typing into the computer takes just as long as calculating a couple of things that you have computer, sorry, calculating that calculates means of standard deviations. This is not really a problem. But nobody calculates those partial degrees of freedom things in calculators. It's, I use pen and paper. Well, somebody probably does, but they're some kind of math wizard, and I'm not one of those. Assumptions of a t-test. We certainly will have time. Um, a simple random sample. So you need the, the math behind, why do we have assumptions in this difficult test? Because the math behind how this stuff works makes assumptions. And you remember doing things in more advanced math even in high school where you were given, let's say something like proving an identity or doing some kind of proof and you were told to assume certain things. That's all this is. Certain assumptions have been made to make the math work. So one of them is a simple random sample. You can violate the shit out of that assumption. It doesn't really matter. You can really violate it. It's great. Independence of observations. You cannot violate this. What does that mean? That means that if I know that score, I, it doesn't tell me anything about Alice. Okay? So one score does not depend on some other score. You say, wait, Dave, what about the paired sample t-test? Are you saying it was before and after the same person? Yes, but the difference doesn't depend on any other difference. And that's what you compare. Okay? So that you can't violate. The math stops working when you violate it. And homogeneity of variance, you can violate that. That just means the variances are the same. Um, you can violate that about twice as much. And if you violate it, there's a way to deal with it, which is these partial degrees of freedom or doing pool variance. You can't violate it. Once it gets to be about four times, once four times bigger than another, um, you can't really use a t-test. So the math stops working. So two times as big, use a different variance version. Four times as big, don't do a t-test. There are other procedures that are kind of like t-tests. If you use that case, the local <laughs> sum test is one. You can use a lot of men would be you, but there are things that you can do. These are your most powerful. Questions. So I'm going to show you how to do this in SPSS. Oh, that's on tonight. Are you excited? Are you not excited about Star Trek Picard being on tonight? I am so excited. I love Star Trek so much. I also can't wait to see people complain on Twitter about how somehow it ruins their childhood. Because that's what everybody does when anything's new. Oh, this is not exactly what I want it to be. It's horrible. All right. So... I'll show you 
how to do that. Actually, how many of you are using PSPP? Very many, eh? So you'll see a lot of you have maps. So we'll use the other guy here. Throw it all out.